How long do you think Beatlemania will last? I love them. I don't care what anybody thinks. I love the Beatles for them, and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105-year-old grandmother, I'll love them. Speaking of professionalism, when is it professional to publicly bash someone who's going through a hard time? Leave Benny alone! What are you dressed as? I'm Hawkman. Hawkman? You know, there's a bird named Hawk. A bird named Hawk. Yeah. You're kidding. Star-Lord! I'll admit I love a Marvel movie. Even enjoyed Star Wars and absolutely adored Taylor Swift. And I'm not alone. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is worth in and around $22.59 billion, give or take a million. The Mandalorian, a series set in the Star Wars universe, was one of Disney Plus's most popular shows. And well, Taylor released two chart-topping albums in 2020 before re-releasing a re-recorded version of her album Fearless to the delight of women everywhere who are finally old enough to scream along while driving or with a glass of wine in hand. The force behind it all, the fans. In the digital world, fans are hyper-visible. Defining a fan remains elusive. Stereotypes of geeks and fangirls persist with all of their negative connotations. Despite geeky fantasy TV being adored by the masses and just about everyone being in love with Harry Styles. I wanted to understand what makes someone a fan, how fans conceptualize their own fandom and what patterns exist amongst the varying fandoms. What I discovered is that fan culture is formed by a vast and complex set of communities with various norms and practices, even within the one cultural product or media property. The internet, streaming services, and Hollywood's obsession with a sure hit has led to an influx of money and attention to certain fandoms. And despite my best efforts, there really is no simple answer for what makes a fan. I'm Amelia Cullen, and this is Lately the podcast that gives space to people to discuss the issues of today. I spoke with the host of Fansplaining, a podcast about fandom that explores what does it really mean to be a fan or to be part of a fandom. They told me about their individual interest in fandom and how the podcast came to be. Hey, hi, I'm Elizabeth Minkle. Uh, I am a fan culture expert, one half of the podcast Fansplaining. I have always been fanish. I joined online fandoms in the late 90s. I've always been very active, particularly in um, transformative fandom. That's fan works like fan fiction in particular, but other kinds of art that people make around stuff they love. And I started working in the media in the late 2000s, became a book journalist, amongst other things. And uh, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out and was a phenomenon, that came from a Twilight fanfic. Um, And so the book media really tried and, and failed to uh, explain those connections and explain what fan fiction was to a mainstream audience. And so I decided to start doing it for myself and kind of carved out a bit of a journalistic niche um, that is is growing, thankfully, much larger these days. Um, so I've written for a lot of mainstream publications, kind of explaining to fans, uh, explaining fans to uh, a mainstream audience, the, different, the broad, broad range of what fan encompasses. So I'm Flourish Clink, and I have been in fandom since the late 90s, um, X-Files, Harry Potter, things like that. And I first started thinking about like stuff beyond just what I was a fan of when I encountered Warner Brothers uh, sending cease and desist letters to Harry Potter fans. And that sort of got me thinking about the way that fans interact with the corporations that own the stuff that they love. 
Um, and, you know, fast forward many years, <laughs> I was like a young, you know, preteen, young teen then. Uh, fast forward many years and I um, had finished my graduate degree in media studies and I connected with a bunch of people in the entertainment industry and I really saw myself, um, I wanted to make a career um, sort of being an advocate for fans in the entertainment industry. And uh, it did not take that long for me to come to realize that it's way more complicated than just being an advocate for fans versus like the monolithic entertainment industry. Sometimes it's like that, but there's also a lot of people who are fans of things within the entertainment industry. So it's not like, you know, fans versus suits always. Um, and there's a lot of really complicated stuff about what's happening in that industry. And that has impacts on fans, even when it's not about them. And since then, I've really been interested in understanding all the ways that those things intersect, right? And um, and yeah, still also being an advocate for fans in that industry. So then Elizabeth and I met at San Diego Comic-Con. We happened to be on a panel together. Um, and it was like we were having one conversation and everybody else was having a totally different conversation. And at the end of the panel, I was like, hey, Elizabeth Minkle, I have never met you before. We should start a podcast. And Elizabeth's like, should we? And I was like, yes. And we did. I actually think I said, okay, yeah, sure. Because we were at a bar and I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. But then it worked out great, right? Like how, 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 how many years later are we? <laughs> right. So that was, yeah, that was 2015. So this is our sixth year of podcasting. And we literally put out a podcast like two weeks later and we've done it two weeks, every two weeks ever since. I asked Flourish and Elizabeth about the various ways fans are portrayed within academia and the media and entertainment industries and the apparent disconnect between how fans see themselves and the narratives written about them. Flourish highlighted the different intention or purpose which informs such portrayals. People do have what seems to be like a skewed perspective of fandom, but sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between somebody having a skewed perspective on fandom and somebody having a very different purpose for the research that they're doing or, or what they're talking about. I will give an example. So when I do research for major TV franchise, right, there are specific goals they have in that research. And there's things that they want to, you know, there's, there's goals they want to achieve. And just fully understanding fandom is not actually the goal, right? The goal is how do we appeal to, to the largest amount of people and get them to watch our show in a very mercenary way. And so sometimes in order to communicate how you do that to people who are not themselves fans, you end up giving like a very small slice that can feel very non-representative, um, but is chosen intentionally to like achieve that goal. And I'm not saying that anyone should feel great about that. I don't feel great about that myself, frankly. But, you know, the demands of that kind of writing or the demands of academic writing are different. Elizabeth added how the constraints of academia also play a role. Unlike the entertainment industry or the media, I, I don't think academics who study fans are going in with an agenda in that way, trying to, you know, a point they want to prove, because that's not how academic work should work. You know, you, you should be going in with, with questions, but not with a desired answer. I, I think one of the biggest critiques is it doesn't connect back to fans. And I think that a lot of the writing is pretty inaccessible to fans. And that's not necessarily the fault of the people in fan studies, because there are, there are structures, there are forms, there are ways that they have to write. You know what I mean? It's not their job to write like super accessible explainers to either fans or non-fans. But that can kind of create this big gulf between the people who are studying fans and the people who 
ostensibly might, might want to read those conclusions. And like, there's a lot of tension I know from people from academics about like their fans too, and whether that they even want to acknowledge that and that kind of tension of like, can I say that I also really like this thing that the people I'm I'm describing really like, um, which isn't necessarily a tension that I think either flourish or I feel in our professional work because. Knowing we don't have those kind of uh, ethical uh, conversations that academics do. In fan communities, language has always been important. Use of certain shorthand has developed over time, especially within fan fiction communities. Recently, a lot of these terms have been co-opted by media and marketing professionals. Elizabeth described this. One of the issues with Stan in particular, and it's not the only term where this has happened, is once it kind of spewed out into the mainstream, I got a very like visceral image, but like kind of rushed out like a like a, you know, like a like a floodgate breaking. A lot of people who were not engaging these practices had ideas of what it was. And then they started saying like a Stan is a is a very passionate fan. And it's like, okay, like, you know, and if you say it in a place with enough prestige, like the New York Times, then does it suddenly become true, you know? And then you would get people carrying on from that saying, well, I read in the New York Times that Stan means this, so that's the definition. And at that point, we're many, many levels removed from the actual people who are who are standing and using the term Stan, right? And I think that is a big problem we have with the terminology is it can kind of get sucked away from the people who are actually using it and until they don't really have any ownership over it. And obviously there are parallels and intersections with like particular marginalized groups. Obviously there's a huge, huge history of, of black language being appropriated and then like kind of twisted out of its original usage when it enters like a white, you know, white mainstream. And so like these things aren't disconnected. Flores added that the misuse of terminology is nothing new, but with so many more people adopting these terms, in some cases, fans lose control over them completely. It is interesting that historically, right, like if you if you were if you went 20 years ago, people's main complaint in fandom was, you know, the mainstream media or or anybody who like writes about fandom, they use our terms and they don't get them right. And that's annoying. Right. And it becomes then a shibboleth. Right. Like, well, do you really are you really a fan? Do you understand what this means? And if you don't, then then you're not and you're out. Um, And that's changed as now fandom terms are getting like elizabeth was saying subsumed into you know just everybody's slang as fandom has become more um okay as it's become more mainstreamed as it's become more you know accessible and like as more people have decided like actually actually i can watch fantasy television series and you know been been get really obsessed with them and that's just an okay thing for anybody to do now as opposed to like something you know terminally nerdy um now it's like those those words which previously it was sort of like oh haha <laughs> the new york times like looked at us like animals in a zoo and used our terms wrong and like that sucked. Now it's like, no, but now everybody uses the term in that way. And now that's what that term means. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's gone beyond what we can do. There it is. It's the world's now. <laughs> Fleur spoke about the complex impact money and Hollywood attention can have on a fandom or a fan community. Whenever you have money entering a space, then you're going to see hierarchies change, right? So one of the things that has been notable is the, um, you might, one might have assumed, like, fans, you know, 20 years ago might have assumed, if a lot of new people show up and start liking this thing, then all the people who have been there the longest are going to be, you know, 
the top of the heap, right? They're going to be like the people who everyone recognizes as important um, because they've been there the longest and they know the most. And when you have a small community that's growing in like normal ways, that's often what happens is that, you know, people get at it and the people who've been there the longest are, you know, the, the most well-connected. But that actually doesn't – that's not how it happens when you get the kind of exponential growth that like the entire movie industry turning its eye on a small fandom can create because suddenly you've got, you know, just so so many more people exposed to it and so many more people interested. And, and the money that is coming in, like the, the entertainment industry itself then anoints like the – the biggest names in fandom from their perspective, um, sometimes pulling them from people who had historically been there and had been there a really long time, but also also p- picking, you know, this person's a really great, comes across really great on video and makes wonderful like YouTube videos where they feel really like sparky. And so, you know, how can we then pitch those videos to the average person who is showing up and doesn't know very much about what's going on and that they will be interested in this person and this person will gain a big audience and become a very well-known, you know, quote, big name fan. When I when I say that, I don't mean to say it like, you know, this is destroying the old structures of fandom and, and that's terrible. Like, I don't think that that's always true, right? I mean, I, I think it is, it is true that like the structures are changing, but I don't, I don't mean it to be like, you know, look at this influx of terrible stuff. It sucks. Like that's, that's a very like flat way of looking at it. Um, but it is different. And it is, um, you know, when you say like the quality of conversation, well, what do you mean by the quality of conversation, right? Like, I mean, are our videos intended for someone who just found out what fandom is and has been interested in a Marvel, you know, comic book for like, you know, just a little while? Are they going to go as deep on like, you know, the, the roots of I'm just using Marvel as an example here. Are these going to go as deep on like all of the different people who have written Spider-Man and all of the different things you could imagine within there as something made by someone who's been into it for like 40 years? Probably not. But is that the only thing that is important? Definitely not, right? Like there's lots of other there's lots of other things that are interesting in those conversations that new insights, like new people bring in, right? New perspectives, new ideas. And also, like frankly, you can get a lot of enjoyment from relatively surface level conversations about this stuff, particularly if you're new in a fandom. Like, why would anyone begrudge someone the joys of, you know, debating the the thing that they just found out about, right? Elizabeth spoke about the variance that exists within fandoms, especially when Hollywood has been involved. Yeah, it's also like there's a huge uh, range of behaviors that fall under fandom. And I think, I mean, Flourish can tell you better than anyone, the entertainment industry is not particularly interested in a lot of them. Um, and, you know, sometimes for the betterment of fans, because like, I don't want uh, now Disney, uh, previously Fox, to care what I'm doing with their characters in my fan fiction. I would like that to be for me and my fellow fans only. Um, whereas there are a lot of fans who actually really do care about what the corporation does and thinks of them, right? And they have more of a direct exchange with them. But one of the things I always think about with a large fandom uh, is Game of Thrones and like kind of where it wound up by the end of the show. Um, Because when you say Game of Thrones fan, I mean, you could do this with Marvel or DC or whatever. um, But when you say Game of Thrones fan, that is literally meaningless because that could mean like, I watch it every week. I have a t-shirt. I love it, right? And it could also mean like I maintain the like wiki of 
ice and fire or whatever it's called. I, I've never seen Game of Thrones for the record. Um, it could mean like you write the like the hottest like femme slash erotica with I'm assuming there's multiple female characters, and or you could be a you know a podcaster and and you you know there's a huge to bring it back to black language again. There's a huge uh huge subculture of black game of thrones fans specifically looking at it from that lens and explicitly labeling it that way even though it's a it's a you know a very a very white dominated text um and so all these people count right and it often felt observing this from an extreme outside not having any investment in it not watching the show at all that like people were like kind of not interacting with each other at all in a lot of these different groups they were literally just going in these like kind of circles um all across the board and like that was kind of great to watch because all of these people had ownership over the term Game of Thrones fan, but it rarely felt to me like there was sort of like a match to see like what was a better kind of fan because people were doing such different things. I think that the larger, some of the, some of these larger fandoms, like it just creates more space for people to do the thing they really want and talk to the people they really want. And you're not going to be sitting there. I do not care what the person making uh, you know, the X-Men deep dive comic explainer YouTube videos is saying I don't care about their opinions or their thoughts because that's has nothing to do with my world of writing X-Men fan fiction over in a completely different corner. Right. And they're not a threat to me. And ostensibly, I'm not a threat to them because we just value different things. And so we're doing different practices. Right. And we could have wildly different interpretations of the text, but like and that might matter to other fans but like it doesn't matter to all fans in the way that i think mainstream narratives often make it out to be flourish added their disappointment at the persistence of stereotypes of certain fan types and the impact that this can have yeah there's a really strong narrative of the idea that like all fans are obsessed with canonicity and like only with that and like really want to police the space and so on and that's true of some fans but it's not true of all fans and I think actually like framing it that way does more harm to everybody involved than it does good. <laughs> so I find it very frustrating when that is the um, only way that quote hardcore fans or super fans are framed because it just erases so many, so many people who are very passionate and very engaged and very interested um, who just don't happen to be focused on that one hyper focusy thing. Elizabeth described her own fanish practices and highlighted that not all fans are hyper visible. Um, but but for a little context, like uh, I historically have been a lurker, so I um, from you know the late '90s when I got online, I was writing fan fiction in notebooks before I had an internet connection, and then I got online and realized this was something that other people did, and I read a ton of fan fiction and had a lot of feelings about it, and uh, they were all internal. And I wrote a lot um, and didn't post it and just read it over myself. And it was only um, it was only when I started writing about fandom as a journalist that I started like talking about myself as a fan and being open about that. But my actual fanish practices are still very secret. And it's only within the last few years that I even started posting my fan fiction and communicating with other people in that regard. And I still find it to be my actual deep feelings about fan stuff like like. As a fan, I find that to be somewhat private. Like I would much rather text one friend and talk about it privately than post my thoughts on Twitter and engage in a conversation with like 50 randos. Um, and that's just me personally. I, I take these things, I, I find them to be very personal. Um, and my instinct is not to share that with, other, with, a, with a large group of other people. Um, whereas Flourish is the opposite. 
and just just blurts out all their feelings. You can defend yourself right now if you want. Why would I? Why would I need to defend myself? This is clearly a great way. <laughs> I don't know. You're a little, a little over the top here. So I mean, I think that people are like this when it's not in fandom too. Like I know so many people, and probably because I know a lot of people who are journalists who write about culture who watch a movie and just slap their opinion up on their Twitter feed. And it's like, I would never do that with every single movie. I, I You don't need to hear about that. I didn't like it, but I don't need to tweet about it, you know? Whereas I, I have a lot of friends who like their instinct is like, I have a thought, out it goes, you know? I And they, like, let's engage, let's discuss it, right? Um, and so people, I guess, are different in this, in this regard. Lurkers also present another element to the representation issues across academia, corporate research, and the mainstream media. It is difficult to study or discuss what you cannot see or quantify. Early online fan activity took place on LiveJournal and Tumblr. Twitter is now a huge component of many fans' online lives. Elizabeth spoke about the role of the different platforms in shaping discourse. Flourished media studies in grad school. I did the digital humanities, um, which is the intersection of computer science and the humanities. And I studied specific social media platforms and the way they changed Um the way they change kind of engagement. I focus on books, fandom, and the way that people engage with books prior to the internet. And this was, I focus on Tumblr and Twitter. Um, and like those social media platforms um, are a huge component of this too, that um, sometimes I think fans are aware of and sometimes they're not. Um, the dynamics of, of different technological structures can can literally change the way people engage and the things that they value and the way they present themselves and the kind of, um, like art they create, um, you know, is often directly dependent on the kind of spaces that they can put it out into the world, which isn't surprising. That's the way that art has always been uh, somewhat medium dependent in that way. Um, and so like a lot of the problems that um, we've studied as a podcast are things that um, kind of developed in Tumblr culture. And now I think we're spending a lot of time on Twitter culture because a lot of fans have shifted to Twitter in the last two or three years and the specific stupidness of Twitter has really like sent some of the bad behaviors that we look at into overdrive um and like I'm saying like new fans are coming in at all times and a lot of people only know Twitter and they're like well fandom seems like a place where everyone's just like dogpiling and and you know just shouting at people at, at scale you know and it's like well you know, on, a, on another platform, this wouldn't be possible, right? Flourish adds that another influence is the volume of people now interacting. And, and the scale thing is something that's really hard to express to anybody. This is one of the things which I do think, like, if you've been around a long time, you have a different perspective than somebody who has not. Because the degree to scale, like, when around the year 1999-2000, if you had a thousand followers, you were literally the biggest name in fandom. Like that was huge. That was giant. You had a thousand people reading your live journal. Like you could not even express what a big deal that was. Now, like look at today, right? And like you don't, I mean, like I've got like 4,000 people following me on Twitter and like that's not a thing. You know, I, you know what I mean? Like it's not, like it's not like I don't have an audience, but like that's not a, no one cares, right? Like realistically, no one cares. <laughs> so, and, like that kind of scale change where you go from like want like a thousand followers being the biggest deal to like you need to have like 10 or 20 or 50,000 followers to feel like you've really got a platform. That's a, a wild 
difference in scale that is almost inexpressible. And it has so much to do with like, in addition to all the structures of everything, just the sheer number of people also relates to the dogpiling, right? Because like, even if a thousand people are angry at me, I can probably manage that psychologically. That'd be a lot. That'd be a lot. That'd probably be the upper limit. Like it would be very unpleasant, but like ultimately like it would end, you know, but like if you have 10 or 50,000 people angry with you, like there's not an end to that. (laughs) I asked what happens when a source of fandom is tainted, like in the case of JK Rowling and how as a fan you detangle yourself from a fandom. I think that I I think it's worth centering this on Harry Potter because it's such a big, good example um, but I think that we, I don't know, Flourish, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we've both been struck by the different pages, that, the extremely different pages that many, many people are on. Um, and it's been an interesting journey for me to try to let go of some of my judgment of people who are not making the same choices as me here. And like if Flourish and I were on different pages, I don't know what we would do. Like if you were, if, if Flourish was like, I'm not going to engage with with J.K. Rowling going forward, but like Harry Potter is still very uh, still a part of me. Um, I would be like, what? You know, whereas like I have actually a lot of friends who've made that call um, and it's but they're not as close. We're not as close. And so I don't I, I can be like, I don't know what's going on over there. Like, how are you doing this still? Right. Um, so it's been good. I'm glad, Push, that you and I are on the same page here. Yeah, there's just there's just a very wide range of people and a very wide range of things that are motivating people. So I have some friends whose entire like online persona as a YouTuber is based around their love of Harry Potter. Like, what's that person going to do? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like maybe they do make the decision that this is completely over for them, but they have very strong reasons why, you know, they're like they're 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 being encouraged by everything and everyone around them to try and find a way that they can still participate in this somehow and feel good about that. And I um, personally can't see that for me, but I'm not in their shoes. Right. So, so I don't know. I mean, it's so personal also like because part of it is about an emotional experience right like the reason why it has been easy for me to detach from harry potter is that i inevitably feel like whenever i engage with something harry potter after like a tiny little bit i go oh but jk rowling and then i feel like even worse right like and i think there are some people who don't feel that revulsion at any time like you feel it more extremely than i do and there's some people who never feel it and like okay you know Right. So I think one of the things to parse out too, and this is a complicated conversation that isn't just about fandom, but it's also about like people admiring people's art um, and um, that person getting canceled for some reason. And I shouldn't use that phrase in like a jokey way um, because now it's just been completely bastardized. But like, you know, there's, there's like, uh, there's a lot of different factors involved, but like whether the person who is like causing harm or being offensive or holding offensive views um, apologizes or like the person, maybe they've done something bad and uh, they, they at least make an attempt to apologize. Right. As opposed to say someone like JK Rowling, who's just continuing to double down and clearly doesn't think that her beliefs are causing any harm um, or doesn't care. And then there's also the idea of like whether you feel like it's an integral part of the work. Um, I I don't know, but I do think that there's a huge problem with like 
people i think it's very hard people who like make their fanish identity like a part of their personality and see it as an integral part of themselves and cannot reconcile like cannot process this new information so like they're obsessed with the celebrity and then it comes out that he's like abusing his wife or whatever and the immediate instinct is to defend him because you love him right and this is something we've seen for decades and decades right like this is always you know I, I don't know. I think it's really hard. I think I, I definitely get the desire, the knee jerk desire to like defend the thing that you love and say like, oh, that can't be true. Like, I, I, I love that person or I love those books. Like, there's no way that person, you know, and it's just like as a very human response, I think, because you've kind of internalized it as good because you like it. And it's the same thing that you get even without cancelable, you know, actions or beliefs. Like you get that when when the movie, the next movie in the franchise comes out and it's bad. And people go like, uh, no, that's not right. I like I like Star Wars, so this movie can't be bad. That's that's that must it's lying to me, you know. And it's like sometimes you know sometimes sometimes people are bad and sometimes movies are bad. So the final question I put to Flourish and Elizabeth was, what do you think makes a fan? Their response was fairly chaotic as they tried to articulate a definition that could encompass so much. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the shortest answer is some people just really like things um, and some people are really inclined to, um, you know, like things in a repetitive way and don't get super bored with watching the same thing twice or thinking about it a lot. I think that there is definitely something inherent and neurological in the brains of people who tend to be fanish. Um, I think it's a huge spectrum, obviously, but like I have lots of friends who don't watch something and then think about it constantly right and I do and I also do that with other things you know um and that that's not necessarily a good thing but like with fandom as long as it doesn't interfere with your life it doesn't I don't think it's really harmful so so I actually would take a stand for um identity as being the central thing about being a fan if I had to like say like what is the deal with fans I would say that fans are people who um incorporate the thing they're a fan of into their own identity oh flourish that is so so over the let's so much i strongly disagree but i do think that if you're reading and rereading a book and engaging with it so often even if you never talk to another human about it like it's shaping your thinking about the world right a special it's having like a special relationship with that text that informs your i think you're i think you're overstating us right now i mean just like millions of people millions of people are in fandom and i just think that i calling it identity is is too strong and it could be like extremely important to so many people um well, and right. And I mean, and that's and that is your one thing that you are making the point about here is that like when I say identity, I'm making many points, but go ahead. One of the I said one thing that you're making a point about here is it is true that like that's a different definition than someone who is like in the entertainment industry and like saying like who are the fans of this show would be saying. And it's a different thing than people who would necessarily identify themselves as a fan. Right. Like there's lots of people who would say I'm a fan of Game of Thrones who for whom Game of Thrones is not part of their identity or part of their you know self-experience or whatever yeah i think you're also leaning on a very positive definition of of self-definition of fan right i know so many people who are in fandom who mostly hate the thing that they are a fan of 
Um, and would they pay, paint that hatred as like a central part of their identity? It's just like a big part of their life. That's not necessarily negative. There's lots of, I mean, I did my, I did my master's thesis on people who hate Twilight and like a lot of them. Yeah. Actually like define themselves against Twilight is a big part of their thing. You know, define sometimes uh, defining that like defining yourself against a thing can be part of it too. So for the record, I think this definition is way too strong. I think that, uh, Lots and lots of people uh, get really interested in stuff, whether it's negative or positive, um, fixate on stuff. And I think that a lot of people self-identify as a fan, and that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but that self-definition is the only thing that really matters. And I don't think that their perception of the relationship to their identity or personality or whatever is, is inherent uh, or, or, or kind of fixed the way that Flourish is describing. I I mean, fixed is hard to say. Um, what about what about any of us is completely fixed, right? <sighs> All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's tricky because I feel like one thing that we've seen in the last 10 years is like kind of a breakdown of what this term means and like as it's mainstreamed and normalized and commercialized. We've seen a lot of people kind of claiming the word fan. Um, and I think that can cause a lot of tension because people are like, well, but I'm the one who's super weird and ostracized. And 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 and, and to be clear, when I'm saying when I when I propose this identity thing, I don't mean that in a gate. Like, I don't mean that like it on the one hand by saying that, like, I think fan a, a fan is like this. It is gatekeeping in the sense of it saying like if I actually stick with this definition then it means like oh just because you say you're a fan then you're not a fan but I don't actually think that like it's useful to be like you're not a real fan like that's not you know like like I would love for there to be a way to talk about different like different kinds of engagement or different kinds of you know obsession with stuff that is not hierarchical and doesn't suggest like well you're less than but there's there's literally no way to do that because the things that I value as a fan are not the things that other people value as a fan. Yeah, and I don't think the definition was ever simple, to be clear. But I think that um, as as it's mainstreamed and as the entertainment industry has started to care and as the media has started to care and now as the technology industry has started to care, um, they've had to grapple with this fact that like, oh, I thought that this was what a fan was. Last week, Justin was here. We've been doing some pranks. Like uh, the first week you were here, we were hiding in the women's bathroom and scared yep. women when they went into the stall. Last week, you decided to prank call a fan of yours, yep. uh, Jacqueline. She was in Boston, and she doesn't know it. She thinks she's here for a taping that's later. She doesn't even know this is a show right now. Do you want to come out here right now? Because I want you to meet this guy right here. Do you want to meet that guy? <laughs> All right. All right. Why do you love Justin so much? He honestly has the biggest heart. He cares so much of his fans. Yep. He is always doing things for his fans. He loves his family. His music is so inspirational. I just love him so yep. much. All good <laughs> answers. I like dancing to his music. That's your room? Yeah. <laughs> so you do like him. That's your bedroom. Yeah. Wow. That's really, uh, those are as many pictures of Justin as ever been taken in his entire life. <laughs> When I set out to explore Phantom, I put a call out on social media looking to speak with self-described fans. In the end, I spoke with five fans of very different things to very different degrees, but all proclaimed themselves to be fans. 
For some, their fandom is encompassed within their friendships and family lives. For others, their loved ones tolerate their passions, and in some cases, don't know about them at all. From detailed creative pursuits, online friendships built through fandom, to finding comfort re-watching a film back to back. How they enact their fandom varies, but their affirmation as fans remains the same. Let's see, my name is Amanda. I am 28 years of age now, um, and I am a fan of Marvel, the films, and slowly starting to get into the comics as well. It sort of opened that door. So when I was a kid, probably 11, um, my uncle, who doesn't have kids, sort of like felt out the family to see which kid is going to be the nerdiest and open to his comic book obsession. He was correct in choosing me. He um, was showing me some comics and all. Um, I wasn't super... I, I enjoyed them, but I wasn't super enthused by them. Um, my little heart at the time was dedicated to a book series that shall not be named these days. And then when I was uh, around 15, I guess, is when Iron Man came out, the first of the bonafide Marvel Cinematic Universe, and loved it, had a great time. Then, like, they started, you know, the other movies were coming out and um, it was so exciting to see them all start to interact and everything. And then it got kind of overwhelming. I fell behind. I couldn't always get to the cinema when they came out. But then um, I guess in the last two years, um, I was on the plane a lot coming from Dublin to DC and back again. Aer Lingus had them all on their screen. So I caught up and was just like, okay, wait, I'm back in. <laughs> It's just a really cool storyline, and I like what's at the, like, there's something at the heart of the stories that's, like, they're so human as well. They've got these, like, cool powers. They're amazing fight scenes. There's so much going on, and then it's sort of, like, they've got these powers. They can do anything, but there's something that's holding them back that they have to overcome, and that's very human, and it's relatable, and I like the camaraderie of you know they're forming a team to take care of business whatever they got to do it is one thing to question the official story and another thing entirely to make wild accusations or insinuate that i'm uh, a superhero i so, never said you're a superhero didn't mm -mm. well good because that would be outlandish and uh fantastic i'm janine i'm 33 and i am massive swifty so i was actually a bit late to the taylor swift party if that's gonna call it so i i came on board um for 1989 so i missed country taylor i guess <laughs> I missed the start of it and luckily for me he's re-recording all our music now so i get to experience it that those the re-recordings but no i would have started i remember i remember being in my room and get i must have been getting ready for a night out or something and I was just listening to Shake It Off on repeat. I just fell in love with that song. And I just got really, really into it. It was just making me so happy. And then when by the time the album came out, that was it. I was I was gone full Swifty. <laughs> so um, like dressed up for the 1989 concert and everything. Yeah, so I've, I've seen her twice now. I would have gone to see the Reputation tour twice, but I had to go to a wedding in Portugal. So I only went the, first, the one night, but at least I got that. I had tickets to go see her in Spain last summer, but obviously that didn't happen. Like that, 1989 was when it started and it's just gotten, I don't want to say, no, I will say out of control. <laughs> yeah, so I was in the top 0.5% of her Spotify listeners last year. <laughs>
my name is Charlie Brigden, and I'm well, a big fan of film music, uh, film soundtracks, and also I keep tarantulas. It's something that, especially the spiders, doesn't necessarily get enough positive representation in the media. But I always had a fascination because watching really, really old films, like black and white science fiction films from the 1950s, um, where they had like giant bugs and stuff. And I always had this kind of fascination. And I went through this strange period of actually being kind of afraid of spiders. And then I kind of slowly came around and thought, okay, these are really, really fascinating animals. I'll go and grab one and uh, and see what happens, really. Got five at the moment. Um, I mean, we at some points we've had up to like 20, 25. When I saw Star Wars at a very early age, now it, it was, I watched the film and I kind of loved the film and the music was great. And then back where they had like a book and a tape, so you get, get a cassette or sometimes a record and you put it on and then you'd read the book alongside at the same time and there'd be a certain noise to tell you when to turn the page. So my parents at the time, they uh, they got me the Star Wars ones, and the Star Wars ones used the exact same music and most of the, kind of the sound effects from, from the films as well. So I'd be kind of reading along, and their thing was every every time you, t- you hear R2-D2's beeping, you, uh, you turn the page. Um, and kind of I would then play these things constantly, background noise while I was playing with my Star Wars toys and things like that. So then it just kind of seeped into me. So naturally, when I started to uh, buy records myself, um, then that was kind of, or listen to music myself, that was the kind of stuff that I really kind of gravitated towards. So, hi, I am Uhura. I am 29 years old. I live in London and I am a fan of National Treasure, both films. I'm a fan of them because I really love good, bad movies and both of them are so bad that they're really good. As I've gotten older, I've appreciated the historical inaccuracies of both of them, particularly the first one. But when I first watched National Treasure, um, I was about 14, and like I really, really fell in love with the film. Movie, sorry, because not really art. Um, but I actually never told any of my like secondary school friends that you know I was really into National Treasure, so I would spend like maybe a good hour or two researching after school, um, just about like that side of American history. Um, even though I didn't really understand it, I was just fascinated from the film, the movie. Sorry, it's such an adrenaline rush and it. It's filled with so much adventure that it just never left my mind. So when it came out on DVD, I got it instantly. And when number two came out, I saw that instantly as well. You know, that really is a nice collection. Must have taken you a long time to hunt down all that history. There's the British uh, organization called the British Tarantula Society, and they throw on an exhibition every year in Warwickshire. This is like it's 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 been 
called in press before as the, uh, the crufts of spiders um, because they have a little kind of competition bit where you can have where they've got like best of you know, and things like that and they have like overall best in show and best show for different species and things like that um, so it's nice to just kind of look around there speak to people with the uh, obviously the, the common thread of, of spider keeping Yes, I do have a, a Taylor Swift Twitter account. I, I set up the Twitter fan account. Like, on my own personal account, I still talk about her a lot, but not as much as I would like to without, you know, losing all my friends. So that's why I set up a separate Twitter. I was like, look, I'll just set up a separate one and I can freak out and fangirl with all the Taylor Swift fans over there and not annoy my real-life friends. So, and then we have, like, an Irish Swifties group chat on that where we, we just talk about, like, the fact that she might be coming to Dublin because her boyfriend's going to be shooting a TV show here. That's what we're freaking out at the moment. The, the, the week Lover came out, we all met up to like discuss it and show each other the CD versions that we got and all that because Lover came with like a diary, like pages from her diaries. Yeah, I mean, I went by myself to the last concert because I did kind of feel like I couldn't subject any of my friends to witnessing me at a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if anyone can handle this. Um, so I went by myself. I made friends with the people that were sitting all around me. Um, we all just kind of like started chatting before the gig and like talking about how how fa big fans we were and stuff like that. And I like that. Yeah, when you're seeing the costumes and you're just admiring people's costumes and um, the concert, the 1989 concert, you know, I started talking to people because we were all in costume and similar costumes and stuff. And it was just, it was just really nice. Yeah, there was just a real sense of community there. And I suppose I am 33. I shouldn't probably be a huge Taylor Swift fan, but it doesn't really matter when you're at the concert because everyone there is. So it's like, I don't have a shame for it, but I definitely don't at the concert. <laughs> I used to um, have a separate Twitter account for just Marvel related things because I could tell I was annoying just the people I knew in real life with how much I wanted to tweet about things. And I was like, where are the, where are the memes, kids? Please down like fun. I um, made a separate account, started trying to follow people who were doing the same thing, quickly realized they were all teenagers. And I was like, that's strange, but I guess I'm not really here to make friends. I just want, on Twitter, you don't really make friends. I don't know if anyone else felt that way. I just want to see the content. And then um, because the teens were on it constantly, there was so much content. They were hopping onto every piece of news. And because Marvel is such an active fandom, it was going on all the time. It got to be very overwhelming. And then there's also a lot of people who were very invested in the actors as well and obsessed with them. There was, I remember there was one post where someone saw, I think it was Sebastian Stan in a coffee shop and reported his exact order. And I was like, that, leave that man alone. Like, <laughs> I don't need to know this. So I was sort of like, I think this is my cue to go. I don't, I'm learning too much. I had fun and now it's not fun anymore. But there are times where I wish, because I know my friends in real life don't aren't on board with this, just me. <laughs> and when I'm tweeting about it, I know I'm annoying my friends. <laughs> so I'm trying to dial it back, but not really successfully. 
what really kicked that off, it's kind of a weird story. Basically, I almost as a joke, just for fun, I started to collect Terminator 2 on VHS in every language I could find from every country that I could find around the world. And I mostly just did that because my friends, who many of them are also big Terminator 2 fans because, you know, it's the greatest motion picture event in the history of cinema. So I wouldn't associate with anyone who doesn't agree. That's a joke, of course. I don't mean that. But um, I they all know how much I love T2. And so I one day I, I found a, a German version of it on VHS and I thought well this is kind of funny I'll put it on the shelf with my other ones just sort of as a joke and then I found a Chinese version and it just kind of snowballed from there pretty soon I became obsessed because culturally I thought it was interesting seeing the different the way that they would use the artwork differently in different countries to market the film the way that they would arrange the actors differently and just seeing all the different languages printed on the box all on one shelf to me showed the massive cultural impact of the movie and how huge it was in the early 90s that they produced it for so many countries. I, I have over like 30 different versions from that many different countries. So I started collecting these. It was for fun at first and then I became obsessed. And then I thought, you know, someday I should make a little YouTube video showing all these different tapes, just showing the different artwork and stuff. And then I thought, well, I've got a lot of other really interesting Terminator 2 memorabilia and stuff that a lot of people have never seen, a lot of kind of promotional things and different stuff like that. So I thought maybe I should make a video about some of that stuff too. And then it, I realized, well, wait a minute, on YouTube, if you're a Star Wars fan, which I am, there are literally hundreds of YouTube channels dedicated to Star Wars. And Terminator 2 is also still a, a big, I mean, to call it a cult movie would be kind of an understatement. There's still, it's a, a nearly 30 year old movie and there are still big merchandise companies that are producing merchandise, like three or $400 pieces of merchandise from this 30 year old movie to this day that people are collecting. And there are huge fans of this movie. And I, I realized that there wasn't a single channel on YouTube dedicated to just this movie. And I thought, well, that's something I could fill that niche. And I love to entertain and whatever. In the intro, you know, the, the Terminator arrives naked. He walks into this biker bar and he tells this big, mean-looking guy that he needs his clothes, his boots, and his motorcycle. And then, you know, chaos kind of ensues because the guy doesn't realize that he's a killer machine. But I, I made an episode all about that uh, that actor and that, that character because I got interested in him. And I wanted to do this whole backstory about... Uh, just talking about the actor and how the character is portrayed differently in the movie compared to the novelization, compared to the comic book. And then anyway, I talked about the actor and other films that he's been in and how he kind of plays mean looking bikers in all the movies that he's in. And then I, I wanted to talk about him as a person, but I couldn't find anything about him on the internet, except just that he had died in 2001. And so I ended up going down this rabbit hole. I spent weeks just trying to find out anything I could about him and I eventually I was able to track down several old friends or colleagues of his from his early acting days and I interviewed them and I, and, and I also talked to one of the other guys who played one of the other bikers in the movie who smashes a pool cue across the back of Arnold Schwarzenegger's head in the scene and I talked to all these guys about this guy and I put it all together uh, in sort of like a little mini documentary about this pretty much a no-name actor just because 
He's part of this movie. He's a character who everybody loves to quote when he says to the Terminator, you forgot to say please. Everybody loves quoting that, but nobody really knows anything else about this guy. And I just thought, I need to tell his story. There's some emotional stuff in it that I'm really proud of. You know, people kind of get emotional talking about him and their memories of him and stuff, people that were really close with him. And it's one of those things that I'm particularly proud of because one of my biggest goals for the show is that I want anybody to be able to enjoy it. I, I, like, I don't want it to be a requirement that you have to be a obsessed about Terminator 2, or even necessarily have seen it. Look, it may take a while. I want to wait. There's a bench over there. I'll be back. There's moments that really, like, lift my spirits in the movie from, like, right from the beginning. And I just, even though I know exactly what they're gonna say, I know the movements, I know the camera angles, like I just know that my spirits are gonna be lifted watching this. I can handle people making fun of me more than I can handle them making fun of Taylor Swift. Like you can't, you can't do that in front of me. I just can't handle it at all. It's ridiculous. Um, even in the documentary in Miss Americana, where she says like. Um, Taylor Swift is over party and she when she says do you not have any idea how many people have to hate you for that to be trending worldwide like that just it's so hard when things like that are happening and you're like no I think it's probably in my personality because I don't really know what the link of why I loved One Direction versus why I loved Marvel and stuff like um I'm not sure what the link is. I was shocked when I got as invested in One Direction as I did because, you know, Backstreet Boys and Sync, I really enjoyed them. But One Direction came out and I think it was, it wasn't till their third album where just like something clicked in my brain. I was like, oh no, I'm really invested. <laughs> How could this have happened? But, um, and then I would suddenly, I was like throwing my money and going to concerts and everything. <laughs> but, um, yeah, very different fan experiences, but I think it's in my DNA. My mom is also a fangirl, so, but very, very different things. Like, she'd be very into Star Trek and Star Wars and things like that. So, it's interesting how um, we react very similarly to, but very different things. <laughs> I was looking forward to friends of mine, childhood friends, and and current friends seeing my my silly little show once I had started to produce it because there's a lot of humor in it too it's a lot I mean the, the whole premise of the show itself is intentionally kind of silly it's about Terminator 2 it's not even about the other Terminator movies really except for the first one I just talk about Terminator 2 every episode is a different topic and so to me that's just funny in itself and that's part of why I, I wanted to share it with my friends just to amuse them but I guess a lot of it was, I, I just, I knew that there were millions of Terminator fans out in the world who I hadn't met. And I just thought this would be a fun way to connect with all sorts of other people. And I've, just for fun, I've kept a list of different people who I've met that are enjoying my show. And um, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it, it at least like uh, 18 or 19 different countries now just the power of the internet is so amazing that, you know, making this stupid little YouTube show about one movie that I've been able to connect with so many people. And to me, that's really cool. And 
And a lot of it is about just feeling like I'm providing something that makes people happy, which I mean, I guess I'm, I'm a nurse. And so I guess I already kind of get some of that at work, but, but from an entertainment perspective, being able to give people something that makes them happy, um, outside of, you know, what I quote unquote have to do for my job. This show has been the single most creatively fulfilling thing that I've ever done. This is so embarrassing, actually. <laughs> so, um, uh, just before the pandemic happened, I had just moved back to the United States. And so I downloaded uh, Hinge, which is the, the dating app. And so I, but I wasn't really like taking it seriously. So I just like put in things that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so I put in like stuff about Marvel or like things like that. So, and then I started like, and I'd get matches and we'd talk about it. And then they'd start flirting with me. And I was like, oh yeah, that's why I'm on this app. It's not just to talk about Marvel. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's not a requirement in a partner, of course, but like it certainly helps. <laughs>